Good morning. If we haven't met yet, either because you're new or we just haven't met each other, my name is Thomas, and I normally serve on the Erie campus. And so it's a joy to be out here today with you, seeing some familiar faces, seeing many new faces, and be able to continue our series called Unsung Heroes, where we're looking at less familiar stories in our Bibles, those who exhibit an attribute of faith that we should imitate, and then reveal a character trait about God that we can trust. And so happy Father's Day to you, uh, those of you who are celebrating, and I just pray that the Lord would just grace you uh, today as you celebrate with your families, gather around your kids, or hear, te- hear from them, get in a phone call or a text. Um, but as we transition now from worship, in which we lift our voices in praise to transition in, in our ears, hearing God's Word, I would just love to take a moment and ask the Lord to be the one who's our teacher today. And so, Father, we come before you, and and we just echo so many things that Lee just prayed. And we pray that your Spirit would be poured out on us today. We take the, the message of your Word, and we ask that you would breathe life into every single person in the room. Father, there are so many different situations that are represented here. And there are those who are coming in because they're filled with grief and sorrow, and I ask that you would bring comfort to them. There are those who are wrestling with decisions and need wisdom and discernment. I pray that you would reveal to them your leading. Father, there's those who are celebrating. May they sing your praises and would you delight to see them trusting in you. And so, Lord, we commit this morning to you. Open our ears and our eyes to hear and see the Word of God and and how it builds us and shapes us, corrects us, encourages us to be the men, of, men and women of God, complete in our faith. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Here's a question. Have you ever had a situation in your life that you kept private as long as you possibly could? You had no idea how to fix it yourself. And if somebody gifted you a whole bunch of money... Money still couldn't solve it. Maybe you're in one of those today. So grab your Bibles, fire up your iPads, your smartphones, however you like to access the Scriptures, and we're going to the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 5. If you've never been in 2 Kings, you have no idea where it is, here's the easy navigation. Open your Bible to the middle. You'll probably hit Psalms, and then just start turning left to kind of the beginning You'll hit First and Second Chronicles, and then First and Second Kings. If you see First and Second Samuel, you've gone just a little bit far. And here is an account. This is our historical account. So the Bible is not just one book; it's a collection, it's like a library of many books from many authors over a span of many years, all saying the same thing, pointing to this one salvation. And here in the historical book of First and Second Kings is the account of Israel's leadership. And it accounts for good kings and bad kings and what happened to the people with good kings and what happened to the people when they had poor leadership. Here in 2 Kings, we come to a place where Israel has been rebellious for some time now. And because of their rebellion, God always sends a prophet to go invite the people of God to come back, to return. But its leadership has perverted justice. Its leadership has neglected its worship, has invited idols into the sanctuaries, has neglected the widows and the poor. And finally, God is really bringing judgment. 
And we're seeing one of the instruments of God's judgment is the kings from Assyria and sending generals in to actually pillage and plunder parts of the northern kingdom. And here's where we find our story today, a story of a man that maybe you've heard about, maybe you haven't. His name is Naaman. Naaman's not an Israelite. Naaman is a Syrian. He's, he'd be considered a Gentile, one who's outside the family of God. And so here in chapter 5, we read this. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria. So he is the top general of the military. He's a very important man. Was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. So God is using this Naaman to bring about his justice. And he's allowing Syria to actually have victory over Israel at times. He was a mighty man of valor. I mean, this is a dude's dude. King Kong has nothing on Naaman. Naaman is respected. He has a high position. He's very successful. You would say it's like he's bulletproof. This is a mighty man of valor. But there was a chink in his armor. It says, but he was a leper. He, he, he had this disease of leprosy. And at this time, there's no cure for leprosy. And so to, to have a skin disease of leprosy that would eventually spread over your body would actually cost you your life. First, it would remove you from your community because you would infect other people. And so they isolate those who are lepers. And then it would actually take your body to the place where it would die. Parts of your body would, would fall off. And so here's this mighty man of valor. You just have to kind of imagine what would it be like to be Naaman, being very successful on the battlefield, having put on all this armor that has saved him from spears and arrows and swords, preserved his life on so many accounts. And one day he's home. He's taking off the pieces of his armor. He gets down to his tunics. He pulls that off to bathe, and he sees something on his arm. He's never seen this before. It looked like dirt at first, but he washes it, and it's not coming off. He takes the oil of the day, which was used for medical or medicinal purposes, and, and rubs it into this blemish, and it doesn't change. And maybe he covers it up for as long as he possibly can, because as soon as he's exposed with this, his days are over. The life that he knows is over. But it doesn't go away. It just simply spreads. It gets worse. He has no way of fixing it. No one has any way of fixing it. But God does. And so look at verse 2. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria... He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. This mighty man of valor is precious to the king of Israel. So finally, Naaman is willing to confess what's going on, and perhaps he's heard of a remedy in another land, someone to go talk to who could possibly help him in his situation. And the king of Syria, you'll see, not only sends a letter of accommodation, but great wealth with him. Verse 
Second part of verse 5, so he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. These are items of great wealth. Modern scholars point out that perhaps if you were to accumulate for all of this wealth, it would basically be the sum total of 600 common laborers' annual salaries. That's what Naaman is taking with him. If money can solve his problem, he's got it. And so he arrives in Israel with an entourage and money. And so he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. How does the king of Israel respond to that news? Here I've sent, I've sent my servant Naaman, who's very important to me, that you'll do the thing that no one on the planet has ever seen done, but we hear it's possible in Israel. How would you receive if, if the king had sent his general to you, who had pillaged your lands before? Well, the king freaks out. He says, and when the king of Israel read this letter, he tore his clothes is a sign of like anguish and despair. He tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Like this is going to die. This is going to bring a death sentence to this man. Am I God? Do I have power over life and death? Who does he think that I am? And then the king begins to think, this is, this is a scheme. So the end says, only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. There must be some military tactic or scheme of war that I should pay attention to. But Elisha, the prophet, hears of the king's response. Verse 8, well, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. I love these words from Elisha. You just go to the king and tell him, what are you doing? Like, you're embarrassing us. I mean, get it together, man. You know the source, right? God can do this. Send him to me. So Naaman and his entourage and all of his wealth leaves the palace and heads to the prophet. And so he says in verse Nine. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Imagine this, like the whole presidential motorcade arrives at your house. Limousines, the secret service, police cars flashing. What do you do? What does Elisha do? Does Elisha go out to meet him? He sends out his servant. Like, well, get the gardener to go out and talk to him. So Elisha sends out his servant, but Na sorry, Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Like here's the whole motorcade in all of its power and valor and wealth. And Elisha doesn't even get off the couch because go out and tell him, here's, here's the remedy. Go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be clean. Naaman does not take this well. It says, but Naaman was angry. He becomes angry. Why does Naaman become angry? It's because of vanity. It's injured vanity. 
It's this pride. Like, not only am I here with all of this entourage and wealth, but the prophet's not even going to come out and talk to me. He's going to send a messenger? Are you kidding me? I'm Naaman. If I were in my home country, people like kneel before me. People love me. They want to be me. They want to be around me. And this man won't even come out. And then look at his instructions. They're offensive to him. This is why he gets angry. Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. His anger turns to rage and he leaves. Now think about this is, is your name in. What does he say? I thought this is the way it should go. Like I have a problem. I've tried to deal with it myself. I'm trying to take care of it. I've even made the king aware of my problem. And I think this is the way it should go. He should come out and meet me. And if he's going to come out and meet me, he should do something like visceral, like, like be spiritual, wave your hands in the air, like do something that looks really ma- amazing, and then he would cure the leprosy. See, Naaman's trying to call all the shots still. This is what happens to us when we're stuck in our pride. He's trying to determine how God will heal him. This is the way I think it should go. And if it's not going the way I think it should go, then I don't want any part of it. And so Naaman is, is actually embarrassed, or is embarrassed with the remedy of, of even going to wash. Like, come on, do you not think I've washed before? And if I'm going to wash to make this thing go away, why would I do it in the Jordan? That's a dirty river. I mean, back home we have these beautiful, natural springs to bathe in. And so he's infuriated. But he has a servant that gets his attention. Verse 13. But his servant came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, wash and be clean. If you have your NIV, this is ESV. If you have an NIV translation or a King James version, it might say, if the prophet has told you to do a great thing, would you not have done it? I mean, if, the pro- if Elijah would have come out and said, okay, here's the remedy. You need to go and summit Mount Thornton and slay the dragon and bring me back three petals from the flower of faith, would you not have gone and done it? And Naaman probably would be like, yeah, I would have done that. Why? Well, then I participate in my remedy. I prove I'm worthy. It continues to stoke my pride. He says, but the prophet has told you a great thing, though you think it's foolish, though you're stumbling over, it is a great word, just go wash and be clean. What's, what's he have to actually do is humble himself, doesn't he? He has to humble himself. He has to put his pride, his valor, his prestige to the side and choose to follow God's provisions of grace in humility. Go wash seven times. So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. So I just kind of want to picture this. It doesn't say this, but if I'm naming, I mean, I struggle with pride sometimes. I'm a bit arrogant. I don't want to do what other people tell me to do. 
And I go down to the Jordan River, and here it is, flowing, with mud in it. And I'm like, this is so dumb. What am I doing here? And that whole entourage you traveled with is watching, and you're like, ah, they're watching. And so maybe you, you splash your foot in it at first, and you're like, ah, it's not really doing anything. And the servant reminds you, like, no, you got to dip the whole, the whole body. you got to get all the way under. And so you do it one time, you come up, and all your spots are still there. You do it a second time, a third time you come up, and still there's no change. You do it a fourth time, you're like, I'm, I'm so done. But I'm already more than halfway there, so I'll dip five and six and still nothing. But according to God's word, as he promised, he dips a seventh. The biblical number of seven is a holy number. It's the number of completeness. He dips a seventh and he comes up. And, and what does it say? It says, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. It doesn't say, and then some of his blemishes went away. No, this is, this is complete healing. This is the seventh healing where where all of his skin, though he's an older man, looks like the skin of a young child. This is the healing that God brings. And after experiencing the healing that only God could do, he's never seen this before. He's never heard of anyone who's been healed of leprosy. He comes out of the water and he knows, he just experienced the living God of the world. And so he returns, this is what he says in verse 15, then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. This is what happens when someone gets saved, is they realize there is no other God. They're not God. There's no other gods. There's one God who can do this. There's no other God in all the earth except the God of Israel. And he goes back as a believer and a worshiper. You look at the story of Naaman, you think, what, what's a principle of faith we can learn from Naaman? Is that we receive God's provision of grace according to God's ways, not ours. That's a great lesson to learn. But Naaman's not the unsung hero of the story. Naaman's not the unsung hero that we want to pay attention to this morning. Though the story is colorful and magnificent, the only way that Naaman experiences this healing, the only way that Naaman becomes a believer, the only way that we know this story and learn about it today is because of a little slave girl. That's the unsung hero. So let's go back to verse 2. In verse 2, Naaman, who has leprosy, learns of the God of Israel. Now, the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, with that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Just, just put yourself in this little girl's mind and just put a little imagination to it, biblical imagination. Who's the one that came in and ravished her town? Naaman. He's in charge of the military. Who's the one that robbed her from her family? That she doesn't get to see her mom or dad ever again. Who has put her to service 
in his home is this man. What does she do when she learns of his suffering? When she's working with his wife and hears the whispers through the walls because they're rather thin. It's leprosy. It can't be leprosy. No, it's leprosy. Naaman, do you know what that's going to do to us? Our life is over. Your life is over. You have leprosy. Does she say to her heart, good. I hope he dies. I hope he suffers like he's caused me to suffer. I'm so glad he has left. God, thank you. You gave him leprosy. I hope it's a slow, painful, awful death. Now, her heart towards an enemy is willing to share the source of his healing. I think that reflects the heart of God. I'm going to show you why. I think she actually has the heart of God because she knows where someone can be healed, which is first so important. Does, does Naaman have any idea where to get healed? No. Does the king of Syria, I mean, these are, these are privileged, powerful people. Does the king of Syria have any idea how to heal leprosy? No. How about the king of Israel? Nope. Who knows is this slave girl? She's not even named here. She knows. Do you know? Do you know the source of real healing? You see, you know something that maybe the most powerful, privileged people in the world don't have a clue about. The question is, are you willing to share it with people that have offended you, hurt you, caused pain and suffering in your life? Or when you learn of their sorrows, are you like, man, good, I'm glad it's happening. I'm glad they lost that job. I, they, they, they ridiculed me all the time at the office for being a Christian. I hope they get what's coming to them. Now, I think this young girl speaks up because she has the heart of God in her. Now, where do I, where do I get that? Because it's not in the text here. I get it from how Jesus references this story in Luke chapter 4. This is not on the screens. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has just finished his temptation in the wilderness, and he comes back into his hometown as a prophet. This is where he, the famous words of a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And there he enters the synagogue, and this is his famous kind of inauguration of his ministry. And he's reading from the prophet Isaiah, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I have come to set people free, to heal people, to share the Lord's love, his favor, to the world. That's what I've come to do. And they do not believe him. And he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your presence. I'm the one that this speaks about. But you know what? Jesus isn't the Messiah they think he should be. Remember that? Like when Messiah comes, we think he should do this. We think he should act this way. We think he should show up and wave his hands around and free us from Rome. Like not you, Jesus. And they are offended by him throughout his ministry. They think he's foolishness. They're a stumbling over him. And what does Jesus say? He, he reaches back in the Old Testament and he pulls out two stories. And one of them is the story of Naaman. He says in verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Like you're rejecting me as a prophet. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah 
when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Not a, not a widow in Israel, but a Gentile. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus is pointing out to this group, if you're going to reject me as the prophet, like you're rejecting me as the prophet, then God sends us out to the world. Like God's heart, the character trait to trust of God is that God graciously loves the whole world. You think God's grace is just for us and not for them. Jesus is saying, no, God's grace is for us and for them, for the whole world. Look, look, here's two examples, and one of them is our story in Naaman. God's grace wasn't even for those suffering in Israel with leprosy, but he sent the healing to Naaman's household. Like, do you understand where God's grace goes? It's so big. It's so broad. It can change and heal and save the most vile person in the world. That's the story of Naaman, in which he receives the grace of God, even being an outsider to the family of God. And so here Jesus is describing what the kingdom ethic is. In Matthew chapter 5, he gives all this kinds of teaching, all this, all this teaching on what the kingdom ethic is. And I think one I would highlight in the story of Naaman, this is why I think she has the heart of God, is in verse 43, it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And he, he makes it rain on the good and the bad those you like and you don't like, and he just points out, you know, what, what good is it if you love all the people that love you? Like, everybody does that. But if you want to be sons and daughters, children of the Father, like, if, if you want to look just like your daddy in heaven, you want to look like the family of God, well, then Jesus is telling us we love those who don't love us. We love our enemies as well. In fact, that's what Christ came to do. Did you know that Jesus drew near to us and extended us grace and forgiveness at the very time we were his enemy? This is what Paul tells us. This is Romans chapter 5, a description of God's love in verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When did Jesus die for you? When you had it all put together? When you cleaned up your life? when you were strong, when you were worthy of it. He says, when you were weak, falling apart, maybe hiding things from everybody you know, Jesus demonstrates God's love for us that while we were weak, he shows up. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die, like a mother or a father. Perhaps they'd lay down their life for their children. Or a soldier might lay down his life for a good commanding officer. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. When did he die for us? When we were his enemies, when his enemies 
He sees us in our sin, in a condition that we are unable to fix. No matter how much money you have, you can't escape it. And so Jesus comes to be the remedy to save us from the only thing that will really kill us is our sin. And he does it by a means of grace that you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. And some people say, well, that's foolish. How do I participate in that? That's humbling. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Like you don't get saved by climbing the mountaintop and proving you're worthy and giving your life into service. No, we are saved by humbly being on our face and asking Jesus to forgive us, to cleanse us, and to save us. And the world says, that's foolishness. Some say, I just, I just stumble over that. But that's the provision of grace that God has provided. And we don't get to choose the terms. And so this has always been the heart of God. It was not just for Israel, but for the world. Israel was supposed to be a conduit of God's grace, not a container of it. Likewise, we are to be conduits of God's grace, not simply containers of it. Romans 15, if you just turn 10 chapters to the right, kind of puts all of this together. What was the name and story pointing towards? It was pointing towards Christ and what God was going to do. Chapter 15, verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That's a title for Israel. To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Like everything that the Old Testament promised, Jesus is fulfilling, has fulfilled and will be fulfilling. And in order that the Gentiles, that's everyone outside the family of Israel, that's the Naamans. That's the you's in this room, that's the me's. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, and then he just starts quoting, this is from 2 Samuel, then he quotes from the Psalms, and then he quotes from Isaiah. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, and even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles will hope. It's a beautiful story of the outsiders of Israel experiencing the healing that only the God of the universe can bring. Coming to saving faith. But all of that happens because a young slave girl knows the source of healing and is willing to share it, even with her enemy. And that's the heart of God, that while yet we were enemies, Christ died for us in our place. That his death is, becomes our death, and his life is our life. And so what is the principle of faith that we learn from our unsung hero? Is are we willing to share the source of healing with the people in the world that are really hurting? Like the world is really hurting. It always has been. But it just seems so prevalent right now. And the way that God reaches the people of Thornton, of North Denver, Westminster, Broomfield, the way he reaches them is he takes his kiddos and he just scatters them in. 
And then you and I become the handholds in which people can grasp on their way to knowing Jesus if we would speak up. I mean, you, you thought you bought your house because your company moved you here. You bought your house because, man, it had granite. It had a quarter acre, whatever it was. No, you bought the house because the Lord placed you there. Like you work where you work because the Lord really has placed you there. And my question for each one of us in this room is this. When, when you hear of the sufferings of others, even those who have maybe criticized you for being a Christian, called you a fool, maybe called you a bigot, when you hear of their suffering, would you be willing as this young slave girl to come to them and say, if only you would turn your life over to Jesus Christ. If you would just turn your marriage over to Jesus Christ, if you would just turn yourself over to Jesus Christ, he would potentially bring healing now for most certain forever. He'd be willing to forgive you of anything you've done. Or in our hearts do we say, good, I'm glad they're sick. I'm glad they're hurting. I hope they die. We want the heart of Christ in us no matter where he places us, in whatever circumstance, to be willing to share with every human being that's on the planet. If only you knew of my Lord Jesus the Christ, you would be safe. Would we all be willing to speak up with those the Lord has put us in our life with, from our neighborhoods to the places where our kids play sports, to the work environments that we go to, to even the families we live in. Our job is not to be the one that convinces them. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Our job is the, is the one that's willing to share. So let's pray for that end. Father, we come before you and we thank you for these just spectacular stories, these accounts, these historical recordings of your work in previous generations that we can learn from. And, and so, Lord, I just pray for my, my friends in this room, for the women in this room, for the men in this room, may they accept your grace on your terms as you have provided it through your son. And Father, I, I ask that you would give us the courage and boldness to be willing to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ with those that we think will totally reject us, will reject the message that we think it's wasted on. Father, would you give us the hearts that say to them, turn your life over to Christ. He can bring you healing. And so, Father, I just ask that you would also call every person in this room to yourself. If there's anyone in this room that has never known the saving work of Jesus, I pray that they would know the heart of God for them, that while they're still weak, while they're an enemy, you died for them. And that's a display of your love for them. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.